very pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural show, the inaugural Ultimate Sports Talk show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Glad to have you along this evening. I am Dave Mitchell, and it is a pleasure to be hosting this all-sports talk show. For the last couple of years, we've been talking strictly about baseball in this time slot, but now we're going to up the ante, and we're going to talk about all sports all the time. We're going to be talking about what's going on in college football, college basketball. Of course, the NBA is going to headline our show tonight, and to be quite honest, it's probably going to take up the first half hour of the show because our guest this evening is Jonathan Jarks from SB Nation, and he's going to be talking to us about the mock draft scenario that they put out on SB Nation just over a week ago and what's going to happen in the NBA draft next Thursday night coming up. And, of course, the Cleveland Cavaliers have the number one pick in that draft and our survey question for tonight, and we'll be giving the results of that survey coming up later on in the show. But our survey question for tonight is, if you are the Cleveland Cavaliers, who do you pick with the number one selection in the NBA draft, or do you simply just go ahead and trade it away? You can still get your selections in via the chat room, which is right here at ultimatesportstalk.com. You can sign in and join us in the chat room, or you can join us on the social media simply by giving us a tweet. My Twitter address is at OHBBCoHost. That's at OHBBCoHost, or you can send us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Jonathan Jarks coming up in just a little bit here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But I guess the lead story for tonight really has to be Game 7 of the NBA Finals. It will be tonight, and finally, the season is coming to an end. It has been a long grind. I'll be honest, I don't like watching NBA basketball anymore. I find it is almost as orchestrated as the WWE. But you can bring on Game 7 tonight. You can watch it at 9 o'clock this evening on ABC if you'd like. It's the NBA's first Game 7 in the Finals since 2010, and it's the sixth Game 7 in the Finals since 1980, which is also the last year that a road team won a Game 7. And that is the task presented to the San Antonio Spurs tonight in Miami. This series has been a contrast in organizations. And what I mean by that is very simple. The San Antonio Spurs did it the old-fashioned way. They drafted it and they signed little-known ball players, brought them in, and they fit into the San Antonio system under their coach, Greg Popovich. Meanwhile, Miami took the New York Yankee approach. They purchased the title a year ago simply by going out and signing LeBron James from the Cleveland Cavaliers and Chris Bosh from the Toronto Raptors and pairing them with Dwayne Wade, who was always with the Miami Heat. So Pat Riley spent the cash. San Antonio drafted their players. This has been a back-and-forth series, each team winning one game on the other's home floor. Neither team has won two in a row. And, of course, San Antonio is coming off of that devastating loss on Tuesday where they had the five-point lead with 28 seconds to go and ended up blowing it. It has been an emotional series. It has been a draining series. It has been a physical series. San Antonio has done what a lot of people didn't think they could do. They've gotten the ball out and run against the Miami Heat, and I think in some ways it has shocked the Heat. Danny Green has played like an all-star, except in game six. He's got to come back in order for the Spurs to have a chance to win game six tonight. Tim Duncan coming off a great game in game six, actually a great first half, if you really want to know the truth, the second half wasn't quite as stellar, but he talked about game six. 
and how it is going to influence Game 7 this evening. More than minutes uh, better. We still have too many turnovers. We still uh, end with... Uh, um, that's still a bit much, but uh, we shot the ball a lot better, moved the ball a lot better. We, uh, um, we moved their defense very well, and uh, we had a lot of guys attacking and making shots. Um, so uh, if we are going to turn the ball over that much, we have to play as well as we did. So uh, we still have things we can clean up in that respect, which is great. Um, if we can take care of those turnovers, because uh, we can't expect to shoot that well in, uh, in, in every game. Um, but we just need one more, so uh, uh, hopefully we can. Experience plays a role. We, we've been in, in situations like this, and we've been together for a long time. Uh, so that, that definitely plays a role. Um, I think we're just we're just trying to do all we can just to well it to happen. Um, we, uh, we we hope we can respond better next game than we have uh, after wins, and uh, that's the one thing we want to clean up. Uh, we want I think every one of us wants this really badly uh, from the top on down, um, and uh, uh, we're trying to play that way. And we just need to put it on the floor and and uh, understand the kind of energy and the kind of uh, aggression they're they're going to come with next game and and, and counter that with. Uh, I'll continue to play well, moving the ball, and, and, and finding ways to, to, to find open guys. Tim Duncan, the center of the Spurs. He's 37 years old, looking for his fifth world championship. You've got their point guard, Tony Parker, who's playing on a hamstring that could snap at any time. You've got Manu Ginobili, who is an old, 32 years old, with plenty of experience. This is a classic organization going up against the new organization, the new kids on the block, the Miami Heat and the Big Three. I don't think they're the Big Three. I think they're two and a half men, but that's another thing. Still, even with the Big Three or two and a half men, however you want to put it, Miami was within a three-point miss of Ray Allen of losing their title. LeBron James finished with 32 points, 10 rebounds, and 11 assists, and had Ray Allen not hit that three-pointer. I don't care what you've heard throughout the media and how much they say LeBron James dominated the fourth quarter. He did, but he would have been the GOAT of the series if Ray Allen had not kept that game alive and sent it into overtime. It was a triple-double for LeBron James, and it kept Miami's hopes alive for a second consecutive NBA championship. It was the 11th playoff triple-double and his fourth finals triple-double, including his second in this series. Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Wes Unseld of the old Baltimore Bullets, Jerry West of the Lakers, and Bill Russell of the Celtics are the only other players with a triple-double in an elimination game. Going for title number two, has LeBron James looking for history tonight? I want to go down as one of the greatest. Want our team to go down as one of the greatest teams, and we have an opportunity to do that. You know, it hasn't been many teams that went back-to-back championships. It's so hard. And, I mean, this is the hardest thing. I said last year was the hardest thing I ever done, winning my first. You know, and, and last year doesn't don't even come close to what we've gone through. You know, in this postseason, you know, and in these finals. So I'll be there. I'm gonna give my all, and uh, I'm gonna leave everything on the floor, and whatever happens, happens, and I'll be satisfied with that. Well, the story is going into tonight's game that yesterday when San Antonio boarded the bus and went to the American Airlines Arena, when they got to the arena for practice, Greg Popovich ordered everyone off of the bus with the exception of the coaches and players. And he had what was termed a come-to-Jesus meeting. Everyone expects San Antonio to be spent tonight. They're the older team. They expect because of the fact that they were emotionally and physically drained after Game 6 and even Manu Ginobili called the loss devastating, that San Antonio will definitely be the team under the microscope tonight and that Miami has the advantage after that thrilling win in Game 6. I think it depends on the start tonight. From the tip-off to about the end of the first quarter, if San Antonio gets the momentum early, I think it can carry them. I think they can ride the waves just one more game, be able to reach up and look at the basket and be able to play head-to-head against this Miami Heat team. If not, if San Antonio gets off to a bad start, then Miami's going to cruise. I can tell you right now, I would rather go hunting 
with Dick Cheney than watch the Miami Heat celebrate another NBA championship tonight. But Miami, I took them in seven games at the beginning of the series. I see no need to change my mind now. The talk of LeBron's legacy is going to hinge on tonight. It's already started. The media has been putting the pressure on LeBron James ever since he was a freshman in high school. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's all been instigated by the media. Now, they want to see if this pressure is going to make him fold in a Game 7. I don't think it will, but when you talk about LeBron... The media definitely instigated the pressure, but he has perpetrated the pressure with the movie about his high school team, the decisions, leaving his hometown, the big three, joining Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh in order to win championships, the statement, we're not going to win just one world championship, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. He may not even be in Miami for seven years. The rumors say that he's going to opt out of his contract next year to get more money, and he could end up in Cleveland, or he could end up in Los Angeles with the Lakers. We'll find out. But it's Game 7, the Miami Heat hosting the San Antonio Spurs, and that's tonight at 9 o'clock on ABC. But if you watched Game 6, yeah, it was a thrilling ball game. It was an outstanding game. As I said earlier, San Antonio was within 28 seconds of winning the world's championship on Miami's home floor. And because of that, the fans left early. They walked right by Pat Riley in the stands, left the American Airlines Arena, went to their cars, and then when they found out the game went into overtime, they started banging on the doors and wanted to get back in. But those little ducats that you get when you go to any NBA arena, any Major League Baseball arena, pro football game, if you leave the arena, the stadium, whatever, you are not allowed to come back in. Shane Battier of the Heat actually gave the fans a pass saying the traffic was bad. Well, Shane, I got news for you. The traffic's bad everywhere in a playoff game. You came from Duke. Are you kidding me that you didn't know that the traffic was bad after a ball game at Duke? Chris Bosch had stern words for the fan, words that I'm wondering now he regrets even saying. For all those guys who left, you know, make sure they don't come to Game 7. We only want the guys who are going to stay in the building for the whole game. You can't get let back in after you leave. I know that. Hell, I've been to games. You can't You can't leave a game and then come back. That doesn't make any sense. Well, he's absolutely right. Like I said, once you leave the arena, you're not allowed back in. But these Miami fans are fair-weather fans. The attendance stinks in South Beach. It not only stinks with the Miami Heat, but it does with the Miami Dolphins. It does with the Miami Marlins. But this has been the case in point with teams in Miami. Not, it didn't just start with the Heat. It started back in 1997 with the Florida Marlins then, they're now known as the Miami Marlins, they went out and got all these good players to come in and in one year won the world championship. Then in 1998, they broke up the team. Then in 2002, they did the same thing. Then they broke up the team in 2003. They tried to do the same thing last year when they got a brand new stadium. Didn't work. So they made the major trade with Toronto and got rid of all their high-priced talent, including their manager, Ozzie Guillen. It just doesn't work in Miami. The Dolphins tried the same thing to bring in some high-priced players. It didn't work. The Miami Heat is doing the same thing. But these players, I'm sorry, these fans in Miami, they show up late, they leave early. Now, the question is, did they leave in Chicago early? when Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were there? Did they leave in Los Angeles when Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were there? Did they leave in Boston with Larry Bird, Bill Russell, or even Pierce and Kevin Garnett? No. Miami, they do. Even with the best player on the planet right now. In front of Riley, they walked out. Then they come back to the doors, begging to get back in watching the rest of that overtime game on a little TV that they could just see through the doors of the double-A. But for Bosch, 
I've got to ask this question. Sure, I kind of agree with what it is that Chris Bosch says. I, I do. I think these people that leave early, they deserved what they got. But Chris Bosch coming out and saying, don't let these people in for Game 7, I ask this question. If Chris Bosch was going to have his paycheck docked for the full amount of these people's tickets, and from what I understand, it was about a 1,000 people that actually left. If his paycheck was going to be docked, for the full amount of these people's tickets from his paycheck for not allowing them to come back into Game 7, do you think it would change his mind right away? I think it probably would. I think Chris Bosch is in this game for the money and the money alone. And I'm not a big fan of Chris Bosch, but if he comes out tonight, hey, more power to him. I still think Miami's going to win it in seven games. Well, speaking of Kevin Garnett... Along with Doc Rivers, it is expected that those two will be sent to the Los Angeles Clippers for DeAndre Jordan and two first-round picks heading to Boston. Now, the way this deal is set up, because of the collective bargaining agreement, is that Kevin Garnett will go to the Clippers for DeAndre Jordan, and then the two first-round picks will go to the Celtics for Doc Rivers in order for him to be able to coach the Clippers. But NBA Commissioner David Stern came out on Thursday and said the league is not going to accept that deal even if it's split into the two parts that are proposed because they identified Doc Rivers as the centerpiece. And according to Stern, that is not allowed according to the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners. Now, not only is that trade going on, but there's another trade that is being rumored, and that is power forward Blake Griffin going from the Clippers to the Lakers for center Dwight Howard in a sign-and-trade agreement. That because it is no secret Clippers point guard Chris Paul wants to play with Dwight Howard. They'd like to go someplace. It's only recently been rumored that it may be the Clippers. Beforehand, it was Atlanta, then it was Houston, they were talking about Brooklyn. I'll tell you right now, anybody who signs Dwight Howard needs a mental examination, period. If you're the new coach of Dwight Howard come next year, take your paychecks and put them straight into the bank and don't spend anything because you are a certainty to be unemployed very, very quickly. Howard is a headache. He has never found a coach that he could deal with. He's had problems with Stan Van Gundy. Before that, in Orlando, he had problems with Brian Hill. He had problems this year with Mike D'Antoni of the Lakers. He's never met a coach he could play for. The problem with Howard is he wants the offense to run through him. Now, the reason that's a problem, Howard's not an offensive center. He's not a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's not a Kevin Garnett. Quite frankly, he's got problems. He's not even a Pau Gasol. He is the type of ball player that wants everything to go through him. He wants to be the focal point. With Chris Paul on his team, he's not going to be a focal point. If he couldn't get along with Kobe, he's not going to be able to get along with Chris Paul. But what I don't understand is, and I've made this statement before, I think there's three facets of ownership in sports today. The Major League Baseball owners are the wimpy ones. The NFL owners are the conservative ones. And the NBA owners are the dumb ones. I don't understand how NBA owners ever made their money. Here's why. Donald Sterling has owned the Clippers for 30 years. And he's letting Chris Paul dictate to him how his organization should be run. Chris Paul didn't want Vinny Del Negro as coach. Vinny Del Negro is out. Chris Paul would like to have Doc Rivers as coach. They're trying to get Doc Rivers. Chris Paul wants to have Dwight Howard on the team. They're going to go after Dwight Howard. Yet, Donald Sterling has owned the Clippers for 30 years. Chris Paul has been on the Clippers for a year and a half. And Donald Sterling is going to let Chris Paul dictate to him how his money should be spent. I find it amazing why the NBA owners let these players dictate. 
Former Cavaliers play-by-play announcer Joe Tate, who retired a couple years ago, wrote a book. And I saw him on a talk show. He has nothing to do with the NBA any longer. Doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't go to any games. Nothing. And one of the comments that I heard him make during his retirement run on his book tour was, the NBA owners are letting the inmates run the asylum. And he's absolutely correct. I have no problems with LeBron James leaving Cleveland. What I had a problem with was the television show, the decision, and his comments made in Miami, and then his comments made about Northeast Ohio after that. But it was his decision to make. He just didn't need to make it as public as he did. But you've got the big three in Miami. Originally, you had the big three in Boston. Yes, you did have a big three in Boston back in the 80s and a big three in Los Angeles. The difference is those players were drafted. They weren't bought and paid for. The, the players cavorting around, it's well known that LeBron, Wade, and Bosch knew as far back as 2010 that they wanted to get together somewhere and play. It just wasn't a fait accompli as to where that was going to be. But then Danny Ferry, the GM of the Atlanta Hawks, gets in trouble with the NBA for running an ad saying his team would like to have Howard and Paul after the season is over, I find the NBA to be extremely hypocritical in several facets. This is just one of them. The officiating is another. Their marketing is another. But I have to ask, how did the NBA owners make their money? I mean, for example, can you go to your boss tomorrow morning and say, boss, I don't like my supervisor. I'd like to have Joe Blow up the street be my supervisor. Make sure that you hire him or I'm going to go someplace else. Do you think that owner in your place of employment would accept that kind of an attitude out of you? These NBA owners, how did they make their money? Did they let their employees run their businesses? No. So why do they do it in the NBA? It just thoroughly amazes me. There's plenty of rumors going around over the last few days and probably into the upcoming week as the NBA draft is going to be held next Thursday night. The Cleveland Cavaliers have the number one pick, and I want to introduce to our UST microphones here this evening, Jonathan Charts, who covers the NBA draft for SB Nation. He's been keeping us up to date with mock drafts throughout the last few weeks. Jonathan, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm good, man. Great to have you on. I wanted to talk to you about the draft, and I guess let's just get right into it. The first pick is on the clock now for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and that's been our survey question for tonight during the show, and I want to get your opinion. Is it still Nerland's Noel, or what do you think the Cavaliers will do? Who are they going to take, or are they going to trade that pick? I mean, I, I can't see them trading the pick at this point, but I mean, as for who they're going to take, the Cavs are one of the more tight-lipped teams in the draft process. I remember Tristan Thompson and Dion Waiters in the last two years they both kind of snuck up on a lot of people when they took them in the top five. So as who they're going to take, all, all the circulation is either Nerlens Noel or Alex Len as the two centers. And everyone's talking Noel, which kind of makes sense to me. It's one of those, I mean, I, I, if I had to guess, I would assume it was Noel or Len. Jonathan, around here all we've heard is speculation and rumor, and I'm going to run a couple of trades by you that have really been prevalent in the northeastern Ohio area lately. One is is that the Indiana Pacers were interested in getting Victor Oladipo, and they thought that the only way that they could get him was by moving up into the number one spot, and they were willing to trade their number one pick and Danny Granger to the Cavaliers for the number one pick. Any legs to that rumor? Uh, I can't really speak to like whether well, they've talked about it, but it seems a little unrealistic from Cleveland's point of view. You have the number one pick in the draft for a guy – Granger is, let me check my, uh, he's in his late 20s, coming off a knee injury. That seems like an awful lot to give up. 30 years old. The other rumor that was going on, Jonathan, was out of Charlotte, that they were willing to give up their fourth pick for the Cavaliers' number one, and uh, it was supposed to be B.J. Mullins and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Anything on that one? Oh, now that's a rumor. If Charlotte really likes someone number one, that could actually happen. I'd be stunned if they get MKG so fast after taking him number two last year. But I think if Charlotte called Cleveland that offer, they would take it. I'd, I'd, just be, I'd be surprised to see Charlotte giving up a top two pick a year after they drafted him. 
Jonathan, who do you consider the best player in this draft? Uh, I get a big board over estimation. In terms of, like, the overall upside, I have uh, Anthony Bennett at UNLV. Now, I don't think he's the best fit for Cleveland necessarily, but in terms of a guy that I think could be a star at the next level, I think he's probably the best chance of doing that. Who do you consider to be the best fit for the Cavaliers out of maybe, the, let's say, the top five or six players available? Well, I guess I, I've been on the Alex Len train for a long time, really since the end of the season. I had a big article in Explanation about why I thought Len was better than Noel. But either way, I think you would take a center, considering their whole position long term. And that's a matter of Len versus Noel. And that's a very, like, I, over the last month, people started to move towards Alex Len a little more. And I, I personally think he's just a better prospect. He's bigger. He's more offensively skilled. I think he'll develop. And he's, he's more two-way potential than Noel which seems a little more limited in the offensive end to me. What about the stress fracture problem with Len? Is that going to be a, a lingering injury or not? I mean, that, that, that I think with Len is a million-dollar question. I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I haven't seen his medical reports. But I think that is the main issue with Len. Because obviously, a big one with a foot injury is a very serious question. I, really, I just don't know how serious that is. What about a player that's got the highest upside, Jonathan? What do you think? Who do you think that is? Oh, upside! I would say Bennett. If you want upside, upside is the guy in Greece everyone's been talking about, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I'm not even sure. Some people say Antetokounmpo, but I'm not sure either way his name. He's 18 years old from Greece. He's six eight. He can run point, and he's a guy like in five, ten years, he could be the best player in this draft, or he's never come over. Never come over to the United States. But if you want to get like upside, upside, he's like the upside guy of this draft, probably. What would you consider the sleeper of this draft, Jonathan? Uh, I mean, sleeper. There's always a lot of sleepers in the draft because you're drafting the best 22 year olds in the world. I mean, there's so much. I guess if I was saying one would think a sleeper, probably Tony Mitchell from North Texas. I've been covering him for a long time. He's from Dallas, so I've been following him through high school and into college. And he's a guy with a ton of athletic ability at 6'9", 235. He can play some different positions. He's he's on a very bad college team, but very people have actually seen play. North Texas, is, this season, was a low D1 team. Probably not even a top 200 team. His teammates were just not very good. So with the press statistics, he was never on TV. But he's a guy, if you want, I guess sleeper, yeah, he'd be the guy, I think for a low major player. Well, you know, the, the new salary cap is, is going into existence and the salary tax coming up in the next year and two, and a lot of teams are speculating a lot of trades in this draft. Do you see a lot of activity going on during the draft, Jonathan, or not? Um, I definitely think teams are valuing the draft more with the new CBA because you can get a young player for four to five years on a very reasonable contract. So I think draft players are going to be more valuable than they were, say, five, ten years ago when teams kind of sell picks really willy-nilly. So I think they're, they're, if there's more trade, it's because teams want these picks more versus ten years ago how it was. So I've, I'm not sure how many trades there will be, but I think I guess that's, that, that, of course, is the only question. But I said, yeah, I don't know, I guess. Well, I guess the last question on the draft, Jonathan, would be, is this really as deep a draft as many people think? Um, I guess it's hard to say. It's always in comparison to what. I think there will be good players available into the 20s and 30s. But I think that's the case in most drafts. And this year, there's not as many high-end prospects, so the focus has been more on these middle-level guys. And a good example of that is uh, 2011. That was one of the weaker drafts of the lockout. And a lot of guys stayed in school, didn't go into the draft. And then it was kind of down in the draft. Now, two years later, you got Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Chandler Parsons, Reggie Jackson, Terrence Fareed. These are all guys after pick 15 and become one of the players really fast. I think at the very least, 20 teams have guys like that who will be available in the first rounds. Well, let's move away from the draft, which is going to be next Thursday night. And our guest is Jonathan Charts, who covers the NBA draft for SB Nation, but he also covers the NBA Jonathan, the big Clippers-Celtics trade, on again, off again, on again. Now David Stern is really kind of putting the kibosh to it. What's your feeling on this trade? Is Are the Clippers getting the best of the Celtics, and is it even going to happen? 
Well, it's tough because from the from Boston's point of view, they're blowing up the team and they're getting good young players and good draft picks for guys who could retire tomorrow. Like KG is 37, and from a, from a short-term perspective, I think obviously it makes Clippers a better team, but it, it definitely makes them a long-term asset. So it's it's very tough. I mean, Boston's doing a pretty good job of milking these assets for all they're worth. Because how long if you keep them in Boston, they'll retire eventually, and they're kind of in ground zero all over again. And I guess really from the Clippers' point of view, it's getting players to Chris Paul and Pound. That's always risky way to manage a team from a, from a short-term look like that, as opposed to looking at the five-year outlook of your franchise. Well, let's just look forward and say that this trade does happen and, and Stern somehow miraculously allows it to go down. Who's the leading candidate for the Celtics then as coach? I would imagine if the, if the Celtics get rid of Doc Rivers, I think they'll be looking at assistant coaches. They'll be at a full-scale building mode, so it won't be so much important who their coach is, really, because they won't be like to compete for the playoff season. They'll be trying to find a young guy to grow some young players over a three- to five-year window. So, really, it could be wide open, their coaching search. They won't need a big name for the job. And if he doesn't let the trade go down and Rivers stays in Boston, is Brian Shaw the odds-on favorite to be the Clippers coach? It seems like it, but it seems like every time Brian Shaw is the last person, last finalist, something goes wrong. So I don't know what he's doing in these interviews, but somehow, whenever he's up to the job, he never gets it. So it's really hard to say. Well, and of course, tonight, Jonathan, the season comes to an end. It's Game 7. What's your feeling? Is it Miami or San Antonio? I'm going to say Miami is because of home court. I was at the game in San Antonio, and it really does make a big difference, especially for, like, the role players. Guys like Danny Green in a San Antonio, he couldn't get a shot, it seemed like, whereas in game six he was uh, a little more off his shot. But I think it'll, it'll it should have come the last few or few minutes, probably. So I, I'll just say Miami is a home court. Two easily matched teams, game seven, go with the home court. Do you think San Antonio is going to be able to rally from that devastating loss on Tuesday night. I mean, it it really emotionally drained them. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe for San Antonio, the worry isn't, obviously that was tough, but, like, why did they lose the game? And there are things Miami did in that game, namely playing LeBron without Dwayne Wade. That's going to be hard for San Antonio to rally against, because the whole defense has been not talking Wade, doubling LeBron. But now one stretch in the fourth quarter, they came back, they had LeBron, Ray Allen, Chalmers, Mike Miller, and then the Birdman. And the phone just spread all the way around to LeBron to attack the rim. That, I think, is the main thing to watch tonight, is how much LeBron and Wade play together and how much shooting they put around LeBron James so where he can attack one-on-one against the first defense. Well, Game 7 will happen in just about an hour and a half. Jonathan Charks, our guest here tonight from SB Nation. Hey, thanks a lot for all your insight on the draft and the rest of the NBA. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you down the road. Yeah, no problem, man. Have a good one. And we will be back with more on the UST show right after this timeout. In Cincinnati last night, Dylan Michael made his highly anticipated debut in front of a full house and did not disappoint. Michael went 3 of 5 with a single and two doubles while driving in three as Cincinnati defeated New York 6 to 3. Michael, Cincinnati's number one pick in this year's amateur draft, virtually forced the team to promote him after pounding minor league pitching since his signing. Last at bat, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. You can also order Mark Donahue's book, Last at Bat, right here at ultimatesportstalk.com on the main page. Our thanks to Jonathan Charks of the SB Nation for being our guest here tonight and giving us some great information on the NBA draft coming up next Thursday night in New York City and also on Game 7 of the NBA Finals here this evening. Let's continue on with what's going on in the world of sports here on the inaugural show of Ultimate Sports Talk at ultimatesportstalk.com. And, of course, it appears the troubles for New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez aren't really over. This has kind of been going back and forth, much like the Clippers-Celtics trade. Reports surfaced on Thursday that Hernandez's arrest in connection to the homicide was imminent. However, Wesley Lowry of the Boston Globe reported that those reports were untrue. But what we're seeing on Twitter right now is that hour by hour it becomes closer and closer 
that Aaron Hernandez could be arrested. ABC News was reporting the police are not calling Hernandez a suspect as of yet, but they add he is not in the clear either. Hernandez emerged as a central figure in the police's investigation into the murder of Odin Lloyd, a 27-year-old native of Dorchester, Massachusetts, who was found late Monday afternoon by a teenage jogger in a clearing in an industrial park that's located less than a mile from Hernandez's home. Lloyd, who played semi-pro football for the Boston Bandits, reportedly had dated the sister of Hernandez's girlfriend and was reportedly with Hernandez at a nightclub in Boston at some point over the weekend. Now, Massachusetts State Police have obtained a warrant to search the North Attleboro, Massachusetts home of Hernandez based on evidence that the 23-year-old intentionally destroyed the sophisticated security system that guarded his $1.3 million home. In addition to the damaged security system, a cell phone belonging to Hernandez was also turned over to investigators, and it was in pieces by his attorney. Another circumstance that has raised alarm bells with authorities is that Hernandez allegedly hired a team of house cleaners on Monday to go in and take care of the house. Well, this morning, Hernandez got in his vehicle, which just so happens, from what I understand, to be a white SUV, ring any bells there, and drove to the gas station. And TV stations in Boston were following him around by a helicopter. Now, this is eerily resembling June 17th of 1994 with the O.J. White Bronco chase, which, by the way, you can see that on YouTube video. Nonetheless, Hernandez, all he did was go to a gas station, get gas, and then drove to his attorney's office, and in the meantime, stopped by the New England Patriots practice facility. This is getting weirder and weirder as it goes along. Hopefully, Hernandez had nothing to do with this, but if he did, the police in Boston are going to find out about it. Well, let's step away from the law and the NBA and move into the NHL, where there's a thrilling series going on in the Stanley Cup Final. Wednesday night, Brett Seabrook's slap shot beat Tuka Rosk with 9.51 gone in overtime, and the Chicago Blackhawks beat the Boston Bruins 6-5 to to send the Stanley Cup Finals back to Chicago tied at two games apiece. It was the third overtime in the first four games of this series, including a triple overtime game in Game 1, but it bore little resemblance to the three tightly contested games that opened up this series. The teams combined for five goals in the second period, as many as in Game 2 and Game 3 combined, as Chicago repeatedly sprinted into the lead only to have Boston come back and tie things up. And after the game, Seabrook commented, about the winning goal and the evenness of the Blackhawks and the Bruins. I just tried to get past the first guy, and, and uh, you know, I thought, uh, you know, all the forwards on the ice, I think uh, Kaner, Kaner made a great play putting it on net, and Bixie tried getting it there, and it, it bounced around a little bit, and, uh, you know, our forwards did a good job of getting in front and, and boxing out, and uh, it was just a great play. We just want to win games. Uh, at this point of the season, uh, it's down to, to a best of three, and, and uh we want to win games and find a way to win them any way we can. Um, you know, I obviously uh, like when we're playing with speed and, and uh, <clears throat> trying to trying to play a puck possession game and, and uh, get down low and, and create chances. And, and uh, you know, that's when we're playing at our best. But uh, you know, both these guys have been saying we, we got to be better defensively as well. And and uh, you know, we, we got to be prepared to, to win a game one nothing or two one. And and uh, you know, that's what it's going to come down to. I think uh, Boston's a great team. They, they play a, a a solid style of, of play, and, and uh, you know, um, we're going to have uh, to to shore up our D zone and, and uh, be better at that. Well, that was Brent Seabrook of the Chicago Blackhawks, who tied things up on Wednesday night in that NHL Stanley Cup series. It's been a really fun series to watch. Both these teams, as I said going into this series, it pitted the Chicago Blackhawks who probably played the best hockey during the regular season against the Boston Bruins, who are playing the best hockey at the end of the season. But the thing about it is, is that you can't find it on TV. NBC has the rights 
to show the Stanley Cup Finals. Yet, what they're doing is they're switching it back and forth between the NBC Network and then the NBC Sports Network, which a lot of people don't get yet, especially me. I've got Dish Network. I don't get the NBC Sports Network on my package. So, in order for me to try to watch games two and three of this series, I had to go on the Internet and try to find it there. Game one was on NBC. Last night's game was on NBC. Now, game five of the best of seven series is going to be Saturday night. I would guess that's going to be on the NBC network because usually there's nothing going on on Saturday night on TV. Then game six will come back to Boston on Monday. Now, they may not show game six Monday night on NBC because that is a good night for TV. And they might put it on the NBC Sports Channel. So take a look at your local listings to find out where it is going to be. The city of San Jose this week sued Major League Baseball in case you missed it. That's in an effort to move the Oakland Athletics to the South Bay. This lawsuit is challenging the Giants' claim to the region and Major League Baseball's monopoly over the business of professional baseball. This is going to be an interesting lawsuit. The San Jose City Council voted behind closed doors on Tuesday to file the lawsuit in U.S. District Court in San Jose. The lawsuit claims Major League Baseball and its commissioner, Bud Selig, have violated state and federal laws regarding unfair business practices and anti-competitive conduct. It also challenges the exemption to antitrust laws that the U.S. Supreme Court upheld for Major League Baseball in 1922, which basically allows the league to control everything from merchandising to broadcast rights to team locations. The A's are not plaintiffs in this lawsuit, though, and that's one thing that you want to keep in mind. As one of the 30 teams that make up Major League Baseball, the A's are technically defendants in the case, but the lawsuit is specifically asking that no monetary damages be given from the A's to the city of San Jose. The team suffered a public relations black eye over the weekend when raw sewage flooded locker rooms in the stadium. Sunday's big stink at the Oakland Coliseum was not a result of poor plumbing in an aging stadium, ballpark management says, but rather someone stuffing something down a pipe. The Coliseum's GM, Chris White, takes issue with the statements by the Oakland A's front office that the raw sewage backup that forced ballplayers from their locker room Sunday was only the latest instance in a common problem. Now, keep in mind, this same thing was going on in Cleveland, and that's what led the Browns to leave the city and move to Baltimore. The old stadium was decrepit. They were having problems with the bathrooms. Sewage problems were kept backing up. It was a really stinky mess. And then the city of Cleveland went out and built the new baseball stadium and basketball arena. Art Modell felt like he was a pawn in politics in Cleveland and secretly went out and made a deal with the city of Baltimore to move the team. Now, this could happen again in Oakland. Don't be so sure that it couldn't, because in the middle of the night, the A's could move wherever. It may not be San Jose, but it could be someplace like, hey, for example, in Oklahoma City. Who knows? But it, the same thing has happened before. And also, sticking with baseball, the Major League Baseball tread deadline is going to hit us on July 31st, but the question is remaining, who is going to be buyers and who will be selling? Fox Sports' John Paul Morosi talks about what might happen in the upcoming weeks, starting with the Philadelphia Phillies and what they intend on doing. Phillies GM Ruben Amaro Jr. told Jason Stark recently that he has no desire to trade Jonathan Papelbon, Cliff Lee, and Cole Hamels. That sounds about right to me. Who would want to trade those guys? The problem for the Phillies is they're not a very good team right now and may need to get both younger and cheaper for the future if they want to keep pace in the National League East. They have not beaten a team in a series other than the Miami Marlins since May 19th. This is a team that really probably needs to reboot, and those are three pitchers that are going to be talked about, at least in speculation, in the weeks ahead. I'd say Hamill's a long shot to be moved because he just got that big-time contract. The other two pitchers, though, Papelbon and Lee, 
stay tuned, particularly Papelbon. There's a lot of interest already out there in a high-end closer like that. The Tigers have been linked to him already, so stay tuned there if the Phillies cannot get things turned around as much as Ruben Amaro Jr. would like to keep Papelbon in the fold. The Toronto Blue Jays, they were everybody's pick to win the American League East entering this season. Uh, they very disappointing in the month of April. But very, very slowly, they have built themselves back up to at least within range. Now, if they end up falling out, the two pitchers I'll say that could be available, Mark Burley and Josh Johnson. Johnson probably more available than Burley because he's going to be a free agent after the season's over. Burley is signed for two more years, but a veteran guy that would be of high interest to other clubs. The San Diego Padres. This team is now very much in the race. They're actually above 500. They've just gotten finished winning two straight series from high-end first-place teams, the Atlanta Braves and the Arizona Diamondbacks. They got a big home run Sunday from Kyle Blanks, who finally seems to be rounding into form, and they have actually a very good pitching staff. So we'll see if Jason Marquis or Eric Stoltz are the key guys in a Padres contending rotation, or if by chance they end up being sold at the deadline. Well, let's talk about some of the rumors that are going around Major League Baseball right now as far as pitching is concerned. The Cliff Lee rumor out of Philadelphia is definitely one that is probably the most prevalent. Now, in Philadelphia, it does not look like they're going to be able to overtake Washington or Atlanta. At the very worst, Atlanta. So Philadelphia in this last year probably of manager Charlie Manuel's career they are probably going to be looking at unloading not only Cliff Lee, but possibly even Jonathan Papelbon and maybe a Chase Utley, maybe a, a, a Michael Young also down the road. But let's stick with Young and Papelbon. I'm, I'm sorry, let's stick with Lee and Papelbon. First of all, Lee has been rumored during this past week to be going to the St. Louis Cardinals, which is fairly interesting because the Cardinals have probably one of the most outstanding young pitching staffs in Major League Baseball, and they're a team with the best record. Now, the reason they're interested in Cliff Lee is because they're afraid of that young pitching staff. They don't want it to go through a pennant race this soon. So they want a seasoned pitcher like Cliff Lee to come in and be able to anchor that staff behind Adam Wainwright. And don't forget that the Cardinals are even looking at Chris Carpenter coming back his arm appears to be in pretty good shape after taking the first two months of the season off. Still, what could the Cardinals give the Phillies? Obviously, the Phillies are going to want some pitching. They're going to want some of that young pitching back in return. Cliff Lee, even though he is getting up there in age, he's around 34 years old, he still has one of the best arms in baseball, still one of the better pitchers in baseball. He's just looking for a team that's going to give him some offensive support. Now, on the other hand, Jonathan Papelbon is an interesting figure. There is one team in Major League Baseball that could really use a Jonathan Papelbon, and they will have absolutely no problems in picking up his contract, which has another two years to go with Philadelphia after this season. That team is the Detroit Tigers. Jim Leland has got to be up to three packs a ball game in watching Jose Valverde try to close games for the Detroit Tigers. He keeps trying to build Valverde's confidence up, but they really need a closer in Detroit if they're going to actually contend for a World Series. Winning the division is probably a foregone conclusion for Detroit, even with Valverde as closer. Yet, if Papelbon would come over to Detroit, it would be a very interesting season for the Tigers and probably a very interesting playoff push. I could see Papelbon ending up in Detroit. I could also see Papelbon ending up in Cleveland, and I'll tell you how I could see that happen. Chris Perez, the closer of the Indians, is not very enamored right now with the fans. They're sick and tired of his act. They think he's got a big mouth. And, of course, these marijuana charges that he has against him now, where he had marijuana sent to his dog at his home address, are dogging him. <laughs> Pardon the pun. I could see Chris Perez needing a change of scenery. And with Terry Francona as manager of the Indians, who was the closer the last time they won a World Series championship in Boston? Jonathan Papelbon. Who was the manager? Terry Francona. I could see a Perez for Papelbon trade or something therein being a very fruitful proposition for both clubs. Now let's move to Michael Young. There's a team in the National League that needs a third baseman. 
that would love to have a cleanup hitter. And that team is the Cincinnati Reds. Now, if St. Louis goes out and gets Cliff Lee, I could see the Cincinnati Reds giving Philadelphia just about anything they want to have Michael Young come over and play third base and be their cleanup hitter, and that way they could move Brandon Phillips back into the number two spot in the batting order. Just a couple of rumors there that are bounding around Major League Baseball. We'll keep you informed as to what else is going to happen down the road. Don't forget, the Major League Baseball trade deadline happens on July 31st. Let's switch from baseball and let's look forward to college football, where Penn State head coach Bill O'Brien agreed to amending certain terms in his contract today to provide him with a major salary bump for the upcoming second year of his deal. Plus, he also agreed to new terms for incentive bonuses and buyout provisions, which was announced by Penn State University on Thursday. The changes are including a boost in salary for the contract year beginning July 1st to $1.9 million, which is an increase of more than double his first-year base pay of $950,000. The university will also pay him $935,000 of that figure in a one-time lump sum payment within three days after the execution and delivery of the contract. Another new provision covers O'Brien's buyout if he is to take another job with differentiates if the job is with an NFL team or another college team. Now, should O'Brien go to the NFL, he would have to pay back just his base salary for each year over the remainder of the contract. However, if he were to go to another college, he would have to pay an additional $1.35 million. That's $1 million for radio, TV, and public appearances, and a $350,000 payback for shoe and apparel contracts with Nike. That's for every year of the contract. Now, there's no doubt that he did a great job in his first year of being head coach at Penn State. They weren't expected to do anything. They had a lot of players that were trying to think of as to whether or not they were going to leave the university after the season. He managed to keep most, most of them on the football field for the Nittany Lions. But after just one year giving this guy a new contract, especially with all the upheaval going on in Penn State, not only with what happened under the Joe Paterno regime, but also afterwards where the Paterno family is threatening to sue the NCAA and also Tom Corbett, the governor of Pennsylvania, trying to sue the NCAA, but it got thrown out of court just a couple of weeks ago. It seems to me that Penn State is trying to speed up the normalcy going on at the university. They need to let it take time. They need to just let things go amongst their way. I'm sure Bill O'Brien will be a fine head football coach, but after one year to double this guy's salary and put in different clauses if he decides to leave, just doesn't make much sense to me. Let's make sure that he is the man for the job at Penn State rather than just assuming that he is after only a nine-month period and giving him all the benefit of the doubt before it happens. Well, did everybody hear this news? These three Atlanta radio hosts, what a couple of bozos, a trio of bozos, actually. They've been fired after an offensive segment mocked former New Orleans Saints player Steve Gleason, who's battling ALS, which is the Lou Gehrig's disease. The segment aired on Monday morning during their so-called show, Mayhem in the AM. Well, the mayhem happened to them. It's on 790 called The Zone in Atlanta. The segment occurred during the program hosted by Stephen Shapiro, Chris Domino, and Nick Cellini and began with a discussion of Gleason's guest column in Sports Illustrated. It soon devolved into an apparent attempt at humor that included someone using a robotic voice effect pretending to be Gleason. You know, that seems to be the trend going on in morning radio. Who can outshock the other? Um, in this case, the only thing shocking was how long it took the Atlanta radio station to actually fire these guys. It took them two days. They first suspended them. I understand that because when you suspend a radio announcer, basically that's just 
a preliminary firing. What you want to do is once you suspend them, you're talking with attorneys to make sure that you do have grounds for the firing, and then you come back and actually fire the instigator. In this case, all three deserve to be fired just as soon as this went on. Sometimes I wonder where we're at in this society because people just seem to say stupid things, and these three actually took the cake in what it was that they were saying as far as stupid things. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk show here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. And as I told you at the top of the show, every week we are going to have a survey question. Let's get into that survey question right now because we had several good ideas as far as to what the Cleveland Cavaliers should do with the number one draft pick in next week's NBA draft. But the general consensus is that the Cavaliers should select Otto Porter of Georgetown. He's a small forward. People are saying the Cavaliers need in order to put themselves over the top. Now, let me give my opinion as to what the Cavaliers should do with this number one pick. I was never a fan of having the number one pick, especially in this draft. It was nice when the Cavaliers got it, but in all honesty, I think that they really, this is the year that they really didn't need it. I'm more of a fan of them trading this pick, depending upon what it is that they can get. Now, if they can't trade it, there really is nobody in this draft that is worthy of the number one pick. I frankly don't like Nerlens Noel. If the Cavaliers were a team of, like, let's say Charlotte, maybe Washington, a Portland that needs a center, then I would say, yeah, let's go after Nerlens Noel. I'm really not even crazy about Alex Len. The guy that I was excited about three months ago was Victor Oladipo of Indiana. I think Victor Oladipo has the highest ceiling of anybody in this draft. I think he's NBA ready right now on the defensive end. I think he's going to need a little work offensively, but he's an attacker. He's the Michael Kidd Gilchrist in this draft from last year. I think Victor Oladipo, even though I really don't want to take him number one, I think he's the number one pick in this draft for the Cleveland Cavaliers, especially with Mike Brown being the new coach of the Cavaliers. He's a defensive-oriented coach, and I think they're going to go after defense in this draft with the number one pick. Now, what do they do with the 19th pick and then the 31st and the 33rd pick? In talking with Jonathan Charks after we went off the air, it could be a deal between Dallas and Cleveland. The Mavericks don't want the number 13 pick. There could be an example of the Cavaliers trading the 31 and 33rd pick to Dallas to move back into the lottery at number 13, and they've got the 19th pick. There's several alternatives that the Cavaliers are going to do. It's going to be a very interesting draft for GM Chris Grant and Mike Brown, and it's all going to happen next Thursday night after our show next Thursday night at 7 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. We're going to end our show tonight on a sad note. Sorry to say that James Gandolfini died. Of course, he made playing Tony Soprano on The Sopranos on HBO the Vogue thing. It was an outstanding series, and he was found dead yesterday in Italy. And we're going to play this song in honor of the three-time Emmy Award-winning actor James Gandolfini. He left behind his wife, Deborah, and two children, suffering the heart attack in his hotel room in Rome and was declared dead at the hospital 20 minutes later. You know, the ending of that series, The Sopranos, was controversial, but now with the events yesterday, it's evident how the series ended. James Gandolfini gone at the age of 51. Hey, don't forget to join us on Monday night here on UltimateSportsTalk.com with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'll be joined by Mark Donahue, and we'll talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds, and we'll be back next Thursday night at 7 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to Jonathan Charks of SB Nation for being our guest tonight, and our thanks most of all for you little listener and also participating in our survey. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock, 
Good night, everybody. Go San Antonio. Go San Antonio.